Welcome to the Employment Law and HR Podcast with your host, Allison Colley. Hello and welcome to this episode number 19 of the Employment Law and HR Podcast. My name is Alison Colley and I'm your host for the podcast. Thank you very much for listening and if this is your first time, thank you very much for finding us. I hope that you find the content useful and for those of you who've been listening and long-time listeners, thank you very much for your loyalty. Now, before I go into the content in this week's episode of the podcast, I just thought I'd comment on um, what's going on in the news because at the time of recording this, it's just before Easter and the general election campaigns have really kicked off, um, it seems, this week. And there's been a lot more in the news about manifestos and what people are proposing. And interestingly, employment law is one of those things that always seems to come up. Um, I'm not sure why, whether it's just a headline grabber or whether um, the parties put particular emphasis on it. But it was interesting to hear that the key headline about Labour's recent announcement was that they are planning on abolishing zero hour contracts in the sense that they would, if they were elected, make it compulsory for employees to have guaranteed hours after 12 weeks on a zero-hour contract. Now, of course, you know, this is just what's in the news and what they're saying they would do, so we don't know if that's actually the case. But I just thought it was interesting to highlight for you about employment law and the fact that quite often, actually, what is in the news and what is said in the headlines is headlines for a reason. It doesn't necessarily go into the ins and outs of what the law is and what's actually happening. So anyway, I just thought I'd mention that. It's something to look out for, no doubt, as I've probably said on the podcast before, if you've listened before, that it's one of those things, employment law is one of the things that different governments like to tinker with. And undoubtedly, there will be further legislation. And if there's a change in government, then um, I'm sure there will be some wholesale changes, because it's just one of those things. What would I say? Watch this space. And of course, once we know who is in power after May, I will, of course, come back to you and um, give you a rundown about what their proposals are and what's likely to happen in the new government. So enough about um, politics. What I'm going to talk to you about today is a featured case, which involves changes to terms and conditions of employment. Now, today's case is about something which has been coming up more and more recently. Um, as And I suppose really over the course of the last sort of five years where we've seen changes in the economy, we had the, the downturn and then businesses making changes to try to recover. And over that period, employers have done various things. And one thing that um, several people have done is tried to streamline their business and look at their processes and make things work better. And often this has involved changes to employees' terms and conditions. Now, there have been some fairly um, high-profile cases. I remember not too long ago in Southampton when the local council were making changes or proposing changes to the contracts for those people who work on waste disposal, uh, so our binmen. Actually, what happened was the binmen stopped working and they went on strike and there was a build-up of rubbish around the city for a period of time because of this issue. 
as I say, quite often it's something that needs to be done for the business. And although it can be fairly painful if employees don't agree, as in the Southampton City Council case, it is something that needs to be done and there are ways of approaching it. So what I'm going to talk to you about is a case which involved um, a flexibility clause within an employee's contract and whether that flexibility clause allowed the changes that the employer were proposing to be made without the employee's consent. What you need to know about making changes to employment contracts is that unless you have the right to make the change within the employment contract already or the employee agrees to the change, you can't unilaterally make the change. So you can't make the change without their consent. And if you did so, it would be breach of contract. So how do you get round this? Well, there are ways of dealing with it. So if the employee won't agree to the change, you can enforce the change if there's something that you can do that's easy to do, like let's just say a change in pay, for instance. So if you wanted to change the way that you make payments to employees, either in the amount or the way that they're paid, and the employees won't agree to an express change to their terms, then you can make the change by just doing it. So the next month reducing their pay. Well, I mean, it's fairly risky if you did that because employees then have the opportunity to pursue a claim for breach of contract or they could resign and claim constructive unfair dismissal. Um, In the case of wages, they might also claim for unlawful deductions from their wages. The other way of doing it is to dismiss the employees, so to give them notice and offer them to re-engage them on new terms. So effectively what you're doing is you're giving them their, their notice, so let's say they're entitled to five weeks notice, so you give them notice to terminate their employment and then you offer them a new contract on the new terms that starts the next day for instance. Now in this case the employees may be able to claim unfair dismissal, um, however there have been some cases where a refusal to agree to a change will normally amount to what's known as some other substantial reason for dismissal and employers have been able to justify their decisions in those circumstances. However, it does depend on the way that you behave in terms of making the change, whether the change is reasonable or not and just general overview of your behaviour in dealing with the issue. So that's just a quick summary of what happens when you want to make changes. Now in this case, The focus was on something which has been a question before the tribunals quite a bit recently, and that's in relation to a specific clause within the employee's terms. So, the case in question is called Norman and Others versus National Audit Office, and this is a case that went to the Employment Appeal Tribunal. What happens in this case is that the employees worked for the National Audit Office, and they were also members of the Public and Commercial Services Union. Now, there was an agreement with the union and it was accepted that that the terms in question were incorporated into the employee's contractual terms. But basically, what one of the terms stated was that, and I'll just quote it for you, it said, The following paragraph summarised the main current terms and conditions of your employment in the NAO, so the National Order Office. Detailed particulars of conditions of service are to be found in the relevant sections of the HR manual of the NAO. They are subject to amendment. Any significant changes affecting staff in general will be notified by the management circulars, policy circulars or by general orders, while changes affecting your particular terms and conditions will be notified separately to you. The key section of that that part of the employee's terms was the wording subject to amendment. Now, what the NAO did was they relied on that in saying that they could make the unilateral change and the change that they wanted to make to employees' contracts was to reduce their privilege 
leave from two and a half days to two days and reduce paid sick leave from six months full pay and six months half pay to five months full pay and five months half pay. So not an insignificant change for the employees. In this case, because there was a union involved, the um, employer sought to agree changes with the union and the union refused to consent to the changes. So what the NAO did was they implemented the changes without the union support and informed all of the employees of the changes by letter and a circular. So the employees in this case disputed that the NAO had the right to vary their contracts without their permission and they brought claims in the tribunal for breach of contract and they also sought to assert that their existing terms and conditions remained unchanged so that there would be no change to their right to privilege leave and sick pay. Initially at the employment tribunal they found in favour of the employer, the NAO, um, saying that the combination of that clause which had the right to amendment and another clause which the NAO sought to rely on which basically stated that wherever possible management and the TUS will try to reach agreement before implementing any changes which affect staff. Changes to working practices or terms and conditions will not be implemented whilst negotiations are taking place or whilst the issue is under referral to ACAS unless management considers this essential to the operation of the NAO. So relying on both that part and the earlier bit about subject to amendment, the tribunal did say that the NAO could make a unilateral variation to their contracts. The employees, of course, appealed. And actually what the EAT, the Employment Appeal Tribunal, said was that actually, no, the wording that the NAO were relying on was not sufficient to allow them to make the changes without permission. The Employment Appeal Tribunal here relied on what is really settled law in that any right to vary clause contained within an employment contract will be scrutinised carefully by the courts and tribunals. It's become well known that the employment tribunals will not agree with a unilateral variation clause which isn't clear and unambiguous. And what they said in this case was that the term subject to amendment would not suffice in allowing the employers to make the changes that they required. It wasn't clear or unambiguous. And in fact, they said that it was actually um, quite ambiguous because it could describe any changes or any method of variation. And really, all that the subject to amendment was just to notify employees that changes could potentially take place. It didn't allow them to make those changes. In relation to the second point of the NAO's case about the settlement of disputes section of the manual which I read out to you, what the Employment Appeal Tribunal said was that actually that wasn't incorporated within the contracts, that part of it, and um, actually that was not a contractual term and therefore the employers couldn't rely on it anyway. What does this mean in practice? Well, it means in practice something that I suppose us employment lawyers have already known, which is that the employment tribunals are and the employment appeal tribunal are reluctant to uphold general flexibility clauses where the changes being made are potentially contentious. It's standard practice to include within an employment contract a clause which says the employer reserves the right to make changes to the employee's contract and the employee will be notified accordingly. That's standard practice and I wouldn't say not to include that anymore because that gives you the right as an employer to make changes that are sort of administrative or uncontentious, that sort of stuff. What we're referring to in this case is clauses that involve something which is likely to cause dispute with the employees. So something that, by its very nature, it's unlikely that 
most employees or that all employees will agree to without some form of negotiation or inducement to agree. So that's things like changes to hours, changes to the way people are paid, uh, changes to places of employment, all of those sorts of things. So what can you do practically to increase the prospect of you being able to make that change unilaterally without having to go down the route of dismissing and re-engaging or enforcing the term? Well, what you should do is have a clear clause and set out the reasons why you might need to make that change. So let's just say you have a business which is subject to fluctuations in work levels. Maybe you rely on particular contracts and you can't always be sure that there's a, a, a certain level of work going to be available for staff. Now you could include within the contract a clause which gives an employee a minimum amount of hours but underneath that you could then add a variation clause to state that due to the nature of the business it's recognised between the parties that there can be fluctuations in business when depending on contract levels for instance and therefore the employer reserves the right to increase or reduce hours accordingly upon consultation with the employee something along those lines now I'm not saying necessarily that that clause will allow you to make the change but there's more chance of having an opportunity to say or to argue that you have the right to make the change without the employee's permission because they've already agreed to it in the employment contract than if you had a general flexibility clause I would certainly say if this is something you're concerned about or you're thinking about the future and you want some flexibility in your contracts, then you should definitely get advice because the only time that the problem will arise is when you need to utilise that clause. So it's better to have it in place and sorted from the outset so that you are less likely to run into difficulty. And then equally, if you do need to make changes to your employees' contracts, the way that you handle it from the start is key. It's key not only in trying to get employees to agree, but it's key in terms of when you come to a decision about, let's say, giving notice to terminate someone's employment, you need to have behaved reasonably in giving the employees notice and the opportunity to agree. Certainly get advice again from a very early stage about your particular situation. I'll put all the details about this case in the show notes so you can find out more information and read the full judgment if you want. You can find the show notes at adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash podcast forward slash 19. Okay, so this week's HR tip of the week. Now, it is an unashamed plug. As many of you know, I am a solicitor and I do run my own practice, Real Employment Law Advice, so I do provide advice to employers and employees on all aspects of employment law, from anything from contracts through to employment tribunals. What I'm going to talk to you about as a HR best practice tip is actually a service that I provide, and this is called HR Harbour. It's essentially a way of not only getting your personnel records into order, but also providing you with the knowledge and expertise from an employment lawyer, I'm on hand to help you and to really get involved in your business so that your HR needs are taken care of. And then if you did have a situation where you needed to make changes to contracts, then I would be involved in that for you. And that's at one fixed monthly price, depending on the size of your business and your requirements. So that's HR Harbour. Now, my best practice tip is in relation to the management of your personnel records within the HR Harbour service is a system of software 
which is designed specifically by employment and HR practitioners for business owners. When I came across this software, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I had previously worked in my old firm as part-time HR manager. So I used to do 50% of my time roughly as HR manager for the firm and around 50% dealing with client work and advising on employment law issues. And when I was doing that HR, dual HR role, although we only had about 25 to 30 staff, I couldn't believe the amount of paperwork that it generated. So that was everything from things like sickness forms, holiday forms, contracts, induction procedures, induction forms, um, risk assessments, you name it, there was paperwork for it. And I worked in an open plan office. So we had to make a conscious decision about how we kept that information and where we kept it. And it just made life very difficult having paper personnel files that I had to go to another room to unlock a cabinet to find to deal with. And also then I'd have folders of lots of information and lots of holiday forms. It just made the whole system quite clunky and time consuming. And at the time, I didn't know anything about any other way around it. And when I found this service, the HR Harbour service, with the software, I thought to myself, this is fantastic. This is just something that I would have needed when I was working as a HR manager. And it would have just made my life so much easier. And that's why I've decided to provide this as a service to my clients, is because I know that it makes life easier for them in every way. So even if it's just used for the storage of records and the holiday system, it's just going to save time. My best practice tip is to have a system in place which ensures that all of your personal records are stored in a safe and secure environment with easy access and something that makes your life easier. Now, if you would like to have a no-obligation demonstration of HR Harbour, or if you'd like to have a chat about it and learn more about the benefits, then please do not hesitate to contact me. You can reach me by email. It's alison at realemploymentlawadvice.co.uk or you can go over to the website, which is adviceforemployers.co.uk forward slash HR hyphen support. And on there, you'll find a video link which gives you some more details about the software system. Thank you very much for listening. If you're listening to this before Easter 2015, I hope you have a lovely Easter weekend and I look forward to speaking to you soon. Thanks again for listening. Just want to finalise by saying I wouldn't be a lawyer unless I had a legal disclaimer. So I must just say to you that the information in this podcast is for information only. It's general review and a general update. It's always necessary to get specific legal advice about your circumstances. So please don't rely on anything that you've heard in this podcast. But please do feel free to contact me if you'd like further information or specific advice.